Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, it's a real pleasure to open up the word with, with you all. We're working our way through our Advent series, just chase, tracing through uh, the birth of Jesus through the gospel of Luke. We started a couple weeks ago and looked at the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. And then last week, Pastor, Pastor David walked us through the, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. And this week, Luke begins to weave together these two birth stories, focusing on the mothers, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, from a narrative structure, uh, there's a pause in the action to allow these two characters in the story to interpret what's happening for them. And they do it in two songs, one from Elizabeth and one from Mary both revolving around a couple key themes that we'll see. So let's just go ahead and get started. Let's read again verses 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So just a reminder to, to where we are in the story. Mary has just found out from the Gabriel the angel that she will conceive a child and that child will be the son of God. And to make matters more miraculous, the angel tells her that her elderly barren cousin Elizabeth is also six months pregnant. And so in verse 39, we see Mary leaving Nazareth with haste to visit Elizabeth in Judea. Now, Elizabeth does not live next door. She's about 90 miles away. And so if Mary walked 20 miles a day, the trip would have taken her four and a half, four and a half days. But despite the distance, Luke writes that Mary left with haste. And right off the bat, this tells us something about Mary because people don't make trips like this for no reason. I'm mad if I walk all the way upstairs and then by the time I get there, I forgot why I started. Every decision to make the trek upstairs is way to figure out if it's actually necessary. Because if it's not worth it, that's a lot of energy expended in vain. The harder the trip, the stronger the motivator I need to undertake it. And this is a 90-mile trek she hurries to complete. Why? Because she believed what the angel told her that her cousin is pregnant. And this young teenager had an unquestioning, unhesitating belief and what was told to her by God. And look at, look at what happens when she arrives. Verses 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So right from the bat, right off the bat, we see two things. We see that Elizabeth hears Mary and the baby John the Baptist leaps in her womb. And Mary, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This means that she is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is important because when she says that John leaped in her womb, it's because Jesus was near. And we know that it's not a coincidence. She interprets the movement as a signal to the, her that they, she was in the presence of the Messiah. And at six months in the womb, John the Baptist is already fulfilling his role as a pointer to Jesus. At six months in the womb, all my kids were doing were giving my wife heartburn. The unborn John the Baptist was announcing the presence of the Messiah. And I think we can all agree that this isn't normal. 
Let's put it in context. Elizabeth, Elizabeth was the recipient of one of the most miraculous pregnancies in all of human history. She'd hid herself for five months and just broke the news about, about a month ago. And here, a 13-year-old virgin walks into her house and steals all the thunder. This has to be one of the, the, the biggest one-ups in all of history. I think it's safe to say that whatever kind of special Elizabeth felt about herself and her pregnancy, she's feeling a little less special now. In life, there are always opportunities for envy and pride. But I think here, Elizabeth, I think she's in a unique position to be susceptible to both. But that's, that's not what we get. Look again at her response. Verse 43. She says, and why is this granted, granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And in this statement, we see two things come together. We see Elizabeth acknowledge the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. She calls him her Lord, and he's just been conceived. She's acknowledging the magnitude of Jesus while also seeing how undeserving she is of being in his presence. She asks, why me? That's a question that's not in the vocabulary of the proud. In my pride, I don't ask why good things come my way because it's obvious. My pride says I deserve it. My pride says I'm entitled to it because I'm better, because I'm more important, because I'm of higher status. Why me is a question for the undeserving. And in these verses, we see simple, a simple question that reveals the, the humility in the heart of Elizabeth. She knows that just being in the presence of Jesus is something that she does not deserve. And it leads to wonder. And that wonder leads to joy. And that joy gives way to praise. Humility allows us to marvel at the reality that we are benefactors of God and included in his plans. Because getting what we earn is sometimes cool, but getting what we don't earn is just a whole lot better. At some point in my lives, my kids got the idea that they were actually entitled to Christmas presents. And, and parents, you know that, that there's this constant war going on during Christmas where we're fighting against the ingratitude of our own kids. The bar is a lot higher for Christmas gifts because they know they're supposed to get them. So in order for them to get really excited about a gift, it needs to be really good. So sometimes, for no reason... When the entire family's together and hanging out, I like to call one of my kids to the side. And it's just me and him. And without saying, I'll take a Starburst out of my pocket. And I'll drop it into his pocket. And look at him and say, shh, don't tell your sisters. <laughs> and there's instant joy and celebration that creeps across his face partly because it's unexpected, partly because Starbursts are just really good, but mostly it's because they have the feeling that they've just gotten something that they haven't deserved. They've got the feeling that they've just gotten something that they haven't earned. Point is, is when you feel entitled to something, it's much more difficult to rejoice over it. But when you know you deserve nothing, there's joy in receiving even the smallest thing. We don't rejoice over the things that we think we're entitled to. But a problem is that our pride tells us that we're entitled to everything. Pride thinks things are owed to us. And when things are owed to you, you don't celebrate in receiving them. 
by including this song from Elizabeth, Luke is showing all of us what happens when the greatness of God collides with the humble heart of his people. Exclamations of loud cries of joy. I think if we aren't careful, we can become so accustomed to the goodness of God that we begin to feel entitled to it. And when entitlement sets in, joy fades. And the reason for our lack of joy isn't because God's not good. It's that we're too prideful to appreciate it anymore. Humility in our lives reminds us that God owes us nothing. We deserve none of the things material or spiritual that he has given us. And so everything that we have is cause for joy because all of them are objective evidences of a God that's gracious enough to give them to us. Because when we get what we don't deserve, there's gratitude, there's wonder, and there's joy. Humility frees us to joyfully receive all that God gives us. There's nothing that we deserve, and so everything is worth celebrating. And so here, Elizabeth is a model for us that during the Christmas season, the quickest way to joy isn't getting more of what we want. It's reminding ourselves that we don't deserve the things that we have. And rejoicing over the good God that gave them to, him, gave them to us anyway. Let's keep going. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Luke wants us to see this as a direct contrast. Elizabeth is contrasting the faith of Mary with her husband, Zechariah. Gabriel, the angel, told him that, that what God was going to do. He said, he, God is going to give you a son, and Zechariah responded in doubt. Mary, on the other hand, believed God and is blessed. And these words from, from Elizabeth serve to confirm what the angel said to Mary. And it fortifies Mary's faith, and, it over, and overwhelmed by all that's happening, Mary explodes in praise. Let's pick it up again in verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This song from Mary is referred to as the Magnificat, and it takes its name from the Latin translation of the first line in the song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, this line is set in parallel with the one that follows it. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her point is, is that welling up from the innermost part of her being is praise from her Lord and Savior. There's a lot that could be said about this song. But one of the really incredible things is that this song is a collage of Scripture. Now, if you were to check the cross-references in your Bible, you would see references to Psalm 103, Psalm 22, Psalm 44, Psalm 89, Psalm 98, Psalm 147, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 107. She alludes to 2 Samuel 2, Job 5, and Genesis 17. This shows us that when Mary is pouring out praise from the deepest part of herself, it's Bible that comes spilling out. She's so steeped in Scripture that God's words have become her words, and it's spontaneous. She isn't using a study Bible in a concordance. And one of the reasons that this should catch our attention is because it's in those spontaneous moments, those moments where you don't have time to, to craft a perfectly curated selection of Christian words to respond to the things that are happening around you or the things that are happening within you. It's in those times our hearts express themselves with the words that are most readily available. And Scripture had so soaked Mary's heart that it became her language of praise. 
the words that we put into ourselves have a tendency to come back out. I can have entire conversations pulling, nothing but, uh, pulling from nothing but memorized movie quotes and 90 songs. There have been times where I've left my house with one of my kids spontaneously out of nowhere screaming, bye, buddy, hope you find your dad. I don't know how many times I've walked back from the mailbox with a handful of bills, whispering to myself, more money, more problems. The words that we store into us have a tendency to come back out. But I also think what's happening in this song is that not only Mary using the words to express what she's feeling, I think she's using the words of Scripture to understand what's happening. The Scriptures aren't disconnected from her life and her experiences. The Scriptures are are narrating them. From verse 48 on, the phrase, he has, will appear five times. Six times if you count it in verse 49. She's using this phrase to trace the past actions of God. And she's using the acts of God in the past to interpret her experiences of God in the present. In Mary's mind, the same God of the Bible was the God that was working in her life now. There was no disconnect. Let's pick it back up. Verse 48. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. The reason Mary is rejoicing is because God looked upon her in her humble state. She sees herself as insignificant or inconsequential or unimportant. And in spite of all that, God has turned his attention specifically to her. For our, our, our honeymoon, my, my wife and I went on a cruise. and It was great. I remember getting on uh, the cruise ship and walking around, and we saw this little ice cream stand. And so we go, and we order uh, a couple of scoops of ice cream, one for each of us. And I asked the guy behind the counter, I said, how much is the ice cream? And he said, it's free. And so we just started double-fisting ice cream cones like unsupervised toddlers. <laughs> At dinner one night, I was trying to decide between two different things on the menu. And so I asked the waitress, I said, which one is better? She said, they're both good. How about I send this one out now and you can box this one up for later? I had never felt so privileged, so, so important, so, so significant, but it lasted for all of about two hours because later that night I went out onto the balcony and just looked out at the ocean and then remembered that I was a speck on a massive ship in the middle of a massive ocean on a massive planet, in a massive universe. And I felt insignificant. And being insignificant can be kind of depressing. It's depressing the thought that you don't matter. It's depressing until I reminded that the God that created and maintained all that I was seeing still knows the number of hairs on my head. Here we see a really simple but incredibly profound reality God is paying attention. And he rescues us from our insignificance. He's paying attention to us. He is paying attention to you. He sees every tear. He hears every doubt. He watches every act. He hears every word. He looks upon us. And that word for look that Mary uses isn't just a look of indifference. It's a look of care, a look of concern, of favor and affection. 
God looks upon us like a loving father watches his kids. And so honestly, sometimes when we feel unimportant or insignificant or left behind or alone, just the reality in these moments that God is looking at, at, at us comforts our soul. The fact that God pays attention rescues us from our own insignificance. Just keep going, verse 49. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. In these verses, she begins to create a contrast saying that despite the lowliness of her estate, despite the, the insignificance of her being, the mighty, holy God has done great things for her. This statement states, sets the trajectory of the remainder of the song because we can be tempted to look and say, well, that's Mary. All this is good, and it's just for Mary. God looked and paid attention because it's Mary, and the mother of Jesus is kind of a big deal. We can think that the favor of God showed to this lowly teenager in a small town was an exception. But Mary is going to dismantle that idea starting in verse 50. Pick it up. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, if you're paying attention here, you can see that this, the song is starting to shift. And we can see this shift because the words are shifting. These things aren't personal to Mary anymore. In verses 46 through 49, we saw a lot of me and my, and from here on out, we'll see none of that because the scope of God's actions in Mary's mind is widening. Mary sees God as paying special attention to her in her lowly state, but she does not see herself as the exception. She said that this is how God has always been. The scope of God's activity is shifting from how he dealt with the one to how he deals with the many. And verses 50 and 51 serve as this transition. But they also serve as the thesis for the remainder of the song. Mary divides all of humanity into two categories. Those that fear God and those that are proud and describes how God deals with each of those people. And then in verses 52 and 53, we have a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device that presents a sequence of ideas and then repeats them in reverse order. We'll show you the, stru the structure of the chiasm on the screen. Now, this is important because it helps us understand the intent of these verses. It tells us that verses 52 and 53 are repeating the same central idea, just using different words. They tell us in greater detail who are those that fear God and who are those that are proud and how God regards each of them. You can read them. It says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So in the category of those that fear God, Mary places the humble estate and the hungry. These are the people that God shows favor to. This is the entire story of the Bible. Pastor David walked us through this last week. God shows favor to those that are unlikely and lowly and not the ideal. He used Jacob, who was a shady con artist, right? He used King David, who was a, a, a lowly shepherd, and King David's grandmother, Ruth, who was a foreigner and a widow. Israel's first judge was essentially a one-handed warrior. And a third of the disciples were uneducated fishermen, and one of them was a hated tax collector. 
over and over and over again. We see God coming near to those that society demeans and disdains. These are the ones that he comes near to. Mary and Elizabeth aren't the exceptions. They are representatives of the rule. Set in contrast with these are the proud, the rich, and the powerful. But there's a little detail here that really helps us understand what makes the proud the proud. Look again. Mary says that the proud are proud in the thoughts of their heart. This means that there is pride. Pride is not only evident in their conduct. It's evident in the way that they think. In their deepest thoughts about themselves, they are proud which means that pride resides not primarily in how you act, but how you consider yourself. And in this category of the proud is the mighty on their thrones and the rich. This isn't saying that all of those who are in power are bad or all of those who are wealthy are bad. She's using descriptions to further explain what makes the proud the proud. Because what do the rich and the powerful have in common? Neither one of them needs anything. The rich operate in a world of abundance. They have all that they need, and if they don't have it, they have the wealth to be able to obtain it. They are totally self-sufficient, and the same goes for the mighty on their thrones. What's pictured here is a ruler or a king, a sovereign that has complete control over everything in their kingdom. The proud see themselves as in control. They have the power and the independence and the autonomy to do whatever they want. The rich and the powerful need nothing. Those are the thoughts that characterize the proud. The proud think in, their heart, think in their hearts that they don't need anything. There's no thirst for anything more than what's in this world. And there's an illusion of control over their lives. An illusion of control over their family, over their career, over their sins. It's the thought that on our own, we have all that we need. We have the ability to control and achieve our own purposes. Put simply, it's the thought that we are good enough, that we have it all under control, that there's no problem we can't fix with a good spreadsheet and some discipline. There's nothing that we can't achieve with a plan and some talent. There's no sin we can't kill with effort and willpower. We don't need help. We don't need aid. We don't need forgiveness. We don't need anything. That's, that's the proud that God resists. And the ones that are lowly and walk in reverence towards them, those are the ones that he exalts. That's how God works, and it's an ongoing theme in the Gospel of Luke. God takes all that the world values and esteems and elevates, and he throws it to the ground. And he draws near to himself the humble and the needy, and he fills them with good things. This is the realization that's fundamental to the Gospel. And it's on a personal level we realize that we don't have everything that we need. 
and we aren't satisfied with the things that the world offers us as substitute. Success isn't enough. Relationships aren't enough. Stuff isn't enough. It's all temporary and it's all empty. And we long for something more, something greater that satisfies us because in the end, we feel the pangs of our own hunger. And despite our best efforts, nothing is under our own control. The gospel isn't looking for you to, to, or even expecting you to have it all together. And that's part of the good news. The gospel isn't asking you to be strong or good or successful. It's asking you to admit that you're not. That you can't to come to the end of yourself and realize that I'm empty and I'm hungry and I'm powerless and I need a savior. Telling you to realize that you need a savior and he's come and he's died and he's rose again. And in him, he meets your biggest need for forgiveness and freedom. So if you're in this room and you can just scroll through all the areas of your life where you just don't have it together, this tells me that this is for you, that this is for us. Maybe you find yourself on the other side of the equation. And you're characterized by your self-sufficiency. And you're exhausted from trying to control everything around you. And make sure everything is okay. And make sure everyone is okay. And trying for the life of you to rid yourself of your vices and your struggles. And you're coming in here and you're just tired. Because it's tiring. It's tiring trying to do things on your own. So maybe it's time for you to surrender that throne to someone else. To surrender that responsibility to someone else, someone stronger, someone more capable, someone more wise. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Before we move off of this, I, I think we need to remember that this isn't just the intro to Christianity. Humility isn't just how we, how we get in the door. Humility is how we live. All of our lives, we are dependent. All of our lives, we are in need of God. And so it, it creates this, this, this paradox where the Apostle Paul can say stuff like this. He says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. He said, I am content being weak. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Humility is the ongoing ethic of the Christian life. Dependence is our default. And this shows us that God is never looking for strength. He's looking for weakness. That means that in those areas of your life where you think that you have it all together and you can do it and you got it covered and you have it managed and you have it under your control, God will leave you to your own devices so that you can figure out that how just out of control things can get. But in those areas of life where you look and say, I need your help, I need your strength, I need your wisdom, I'm inadequate, I'm too weak for the task ahead. This tells us that those are the areas where God steps in and fills those needs. Because he's not looking for strength, he's looking for need. And with that, let's, let's finish it up, verses 40, 54 through 56. He's helped his servant Israel, 
in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. In these verses, we can see that Mary didn't interpret the miraculous conception of Jesus as just an individual act of favor for her. It was part of the larger redemptive plan of God. She says that this was spoken to her forefathers, specifically to Abraham. She's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and through, through his seed, all nations will be blessed. This is the birth of Jesus. It's the movement of God in keeping his promise. The story of Christmas isn't just a story of a baby being born. It's a story of a promise being kept. And so what Mary is rejoicing over is that our God is a God that keeps all of his promises. A promise that he's sending help. Now, there's a, there's a radical element to verses 51 and 53. It says that the rulers of this world are being torn down. The proud are being scattered. The rich are being brought low. The poor are being filled and a lowly exalted Set in context, Mary is singing this song. While she's singing this song, her people are being oppressed by a Roman empire. So yes, all that she says is true on the spiritual and on the personal level. But also, at the same time, she's considering the baby in her womb and all that's wrong and broken in the world. And she's rejoicing because she sees him as the one that's going to fix it. He's the one the one that will have the government on his shoulders and of his increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. She hears that she's, going to, that she's pregnant with the Messiah and she says this is him. And so she's rejoicing over the, the reality that in her womb is the Savior that's going to put all things right. Mary is singing about the structures of injustice being brought down. The coming of this child is God beginning his takeover, the onset of a kingdom where all that's wrong is put right. This is incredible because the Christmas season can be a tough one. It tends to bring to mind the things that we've lost or the people that we've lost or the difficult times that we've walked through. So it's a lot of joy mixed with serious, seriousness, maybe a tinge of sadness. Because Christmas reminds us of all the things that are broken. My son's, my son's favorite Christmas song is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I love it because I get it. It's slower, it's darker. It's more somber. And there's a longing and anticipation in it. A longing for all that's wrong to be put back right. A longing for us to recover everything that we've lost. Maybe that's just us. Maybe that's you feeling this anticipation and this longing in Christmas the grief over the things that you've lost and the longing to restore the things that are broken. If it is, then we can still sing like Mary, rejoicing over the fact that the baby will come back and finish the job. 
That's what Mary is singing in a world that is broken, that the king is here and he's bringing with him a kingdom that's going to put it all back together. And we can sing with joy and hope because God will do what he says he will do because our God is a promise-keeping God. And this is the good news for us this morning. We can pull these words directly from the mouth of Mary. Through Jesus, our mighty God, does great things for those that know they need him. There's a, there's a lot to like about Christmas. There's a lot that we should celebrate. But there's one thing that Elizabeth said that I want to come back to as we wrap it up. She says in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And we need to pay attention to this text because it doesn't say, Blessed is she because God did what he said he would do. It says, blessed is she because she believed that God would do that he said he would do. I think this is a good word for us in this season because it's reminding us that on this side of heaven, our lives are characterized by a confident anticipation. We believe that God will do what he said he would do. And because of that, we're blessed. That word means happy. We are fortunate. We are favored. Those that live life in confident expectation and anticipation that God will fill every need are blessed. Even before he fills them. And this is one of the things that the Christmas season reminds us. That we can live in the confident anticipation that our God will keep every promise. And our God will meet every need. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you that, that, that even the, in the immensity of the universe, Father, that you, you still have your eyes on us. That even though we feel small, Father, that doesn't stop you from doing great things for us. We thank you for your promises, and we pray that you would give us the faith to trust and anticipate and expect their fulfillment. I pray that, that as we believe and, and hold on to these things, that we can take some of that future joy to experience, that we will experience in the fulfillment and bring it into the present as we wait. Pray, God, that, that you would help us wait well. That in your grace, you remind us of our dependencies, of our needs, of our hunger and that that would motivate us to go to the one that can fill it. We find our satisfaction. We pray these things in your sense. Amen.